Hello, I'm Samia Aryan. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPeak platform with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. I'm super excited to introduce you to our today's guest, Professor Diana Walsh-Pasalka. I discovered Diana from Lex Friedman's podcast, and I was pleasantly surprised to hear a female professor of religion speak about the relationship between technology and religion. But most importantly, I realized that we both had a love of the German philosopher Nietzsche in common. Diana is also known for her work on UFOs, and her most recent book, The American Cosmic, shares a mind-bending series of experiences from some of the brightest individuals of our time who appear to be gaining their inspiration from unknown sources. So without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation with Professor Diana Walsh-Pasalka. And I can't believe you were in a death metal band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable, but awesome. I love the music. It's great. The funny thing is that, like, for example, on Instagram, most of the people who follow me are still people from the death metal era. They kind of don't get what is going on right now. <laughs> like, that's, everything. that's hilarious, right? It's really I think funny. That's great. Yeah. Especially the ones that were like from other countries or from Iran. So they don't understand what I post now. So, <laughs> wow. That's it's great. I love it personally. Yeah, I think it's good to have, you know, to be multifaceted and, and have like lots of different. Definitely. And I know that you are interested in that type of music, are you? Yes, yeah. So, well, I, I like all kinds of music, but yes, I loved what you did, and how you looked at it and everything. And I think it's really cool, everything that you do. Super it's interesting like, person. You are like Lex. A few people had told me about his podcast. At the time, I was really listening to a lot of audiobooks wasn't listening to podcasts that much and then when I listened to it I was like wow this is amazing this guy is interviewing everybody that I like <laughs> especially starting with like Max Techmark I was like I went all the way to the beginning and I, and I had just read um, Max Techmark's book and I was like oh this is so cool man like this guy mm -hmm. interviewing all the people that I'm I'm really interested the interview with you was so interesting because it was like, I, I really like that he's not closed-minded and he brings mm -hmm. people from so many different backgrounds. It, it's just so fascinating, like people in academia especially. One of my biggest regrets is that I uh, didn't finish my PhD, but the reason I didn't finish it was because I ran out of money, so I couldn't oh. pay for the last year. And I was, oh, no. uh, yeah, because I was an overseas student, so uh, I couldn't mm -hmm. get a loan or anything, you know, and I just couldn't pay for that last year at, at that time. And actually, I've been, sometimes I think about going back to do it, but I'm building a business and, you know, I, yes. uh, I, I think that my energy will be better used. You know, I'm already running my marketing agency and we're working with companies like Steinway Pianos is our biggest client. I know. I think that's amazing. <laughs> I saw what you do. Very congratulations on your business Thank and you. your the videos are beautiful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, the work that we're doing with Steinway is so uh inspiring and you know I think it's a real privilege especially as somebody who um has like a background in music uh, to be able to work with Steinway which is like the best pianos in the world so um been working with them for about four years and I have a number of other clients that we create content for and the content is all about thought leadership or mini documentary style so I run that and then that pays for being able you know have I have a team of six people and we are um you know that are helping me to build this 
think tank for women in business and technology and the Fempeak platform. That all costs money and the money is coming from my first business. So I'm running these two businesses to, uh, you know, one of them is a movement that I'm building and one of them is a, you know, and of course the movement has to have a business at its core so uh, that it can become sustainable because it can't forever making, uh, you know, taking money from the other business because the other businesses, there's a limit to how much I can do that. Sometimes I think about going back to do a PhD. I actually saw something from Oxford University Future of Humanity Institute um, and they have some scholarships now. And I'm like, oh, can I really do it? You know, I'm I'm already working 15 hours a day. I think you could actually do it. <laughs> I, I think, I think so too. Do it. Yeah. I think so too. I think so too. But maybe not right now. I need to make mm-hmm. sure that this business starts to pay for itself. I need to put things in motion so that my team, I, have, I need a big enough team. Like right now, yes. you know, everybody in the team is working at full speed. And then I'm working trip like as much as three people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. So I have zero entertainment. I use this aura ring uh, to track my sleep to make sure that I get enough sleep. I'm a bit of a data kind of sucker, so I I just uh, write down everything and make sure that I know where I am, like in my cycle, making sure that you know the mental well-being is taken care of. And the physical well-being is taken care of. I have a treadmill in my bedroom. <laughs> you know? wow. So that's like, and, uh, and kettlebells everywhere, you know, so to make sure that I, I can stay fit and literally just work like a machine. <laughs> right. You're an Ubermensch. <laughs> Ubermensch. Yes, exactly. Yes. Speaking of that, basically here we are two short women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of Nietzsche, uh, oh man, I cannot wait to talk to you about Nietzsche because it's not every day that I meet someone that I can talk to about Nietzsche. Me either. I can't believe it. A woman. Especially knows. another woman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've, I don't think I have met a Nietzschean who was a woman. Yeah, I don't think I have actually. They're all men. And then a lot of them don't understand Nietzsche. That's what I found. I yeah, work with I people agree. who should, right? They're philosophers. They should know Nietzsche but they don't. I think, I always say like Nietzsche is not to be read. He is yes. to be felt. Yes. You've got to feel. Exactly. Yes. I think Nietzsche is probably the greatest human being ever lived in some respects, you know, mm-hmm. in many respects, except for the fact that he was broke. <laughs> you know, that part yes. I don't like. <laughs> and know, seemingly I, unhappy a lot. I sometimes question that because he talks so much about happiness mm-hmm. and it, fe- it feels like, like he has this internal happiness. You know, he seems like he's he does. fundamentally he does. elevated states. Yes. So he, I absolutely agree with you. And he was lonely, of course, because to be some, he, he, that's why he spoke to us, the future people, right? The future philosophers. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's sad, right? And he, he met Salome, instantly fell in love with her. And she was a Nietzschean herself, right? And so she rejected him because she didn't, she wasn't really about men, <laughs> right? <laughs> she was about life and herself and the world. That broke his heart, I suppose. I mean, he had interesting friendships that were um, definitely not typical of the time period, nor this time period. Um, you know, he was in love with her and she was with another man. He was an artist and they were like a couple, a threesome, but they weren't together <laughs> in that yeah. way. So that's very different. You know, that's something that most people can't handle. 
ant, but they could. And they did because they were um, free thinkers and feelers. Yeah, I'd really like to talk to you about Salome because um, it is my understanding that she was a free-spirited kind of woman. Um, you know, she had uh, some very interesting friendships. Um, obviously, we don't know the details of those friendships. We don't know how much of it was maybe uh, just purely scientifically driven and, and uh, like an intellectually driven and how much of it. Uh, I, I believe that he she had a pretty close relationship with uh, Rilke, yeah, the boy. Uh, Rilke, if, you, if you're German. Yeah, Rilke, <laughs> Which <he> yeah. Was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. First things first, let's go, sure. let's go, because I've got a, um, I've got so many questions for you, and um, then we can come back to, uh, to Nietzsche. Um, but one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, as a professor of religion, you essentially study beliefs, right? And you look at like how they are formed and how they impact our actions. So what is your assessment of humanity's beliefs about women throughout history? And do you see an overarching theme that perhaps may have persisted across times and cultures? Um, And how do these beliefs shape society's action towards women? How have they done it in the past? And uh, to, to what degree do you still see remnants of that? That's an excellent question. And I'm so happy that finally I have an interview where I can talk about women (laughs) and the history of women and beliefs and beliefs about women. And this is what I have found. I found that there isn't an overarching idea about women. Like there is no trans historical idea that women have been inferior to men throughout time. I think that's a misconception that most people have is that this is the way it's always been and it hasn't it's not always been this way so if you look at the historical record one of the most wonderful things about being a professor is the people you know you meet people who know about subjects that you're interested in so um, in my university we have uh, departments of anthropology and history and I have friends who are anthropologists and so we have these discussions all the time and we talk about societies in the past in the archaeological record that show that there were these women who basically ran their society the men stayed home took care of the children and cooked the food and the women hunted with these giant dogs which were probably wolves and this was a long time ago this and they they were found in siberia so there were these women they were even taller than the men so the idea you know that that we have uh that women have always been smaller and that they've always been subordinate in a sense to men is just absolutely wrong. It's not correct. And so we then as like professors, especially a professor who wants to be accurate in, in handing down history to students, correct? Okay, so how do we do that? We have to do it in a way that's responsible and to only focus on the works of men and to only focus on you know, the history of white guys, you know, that's a, that's kind of the joke about philosophy. It's the history of dead white guys, right? But actually, no, it doesn't have to be. Like, we're talking about Salome, right? So uh, there were women philosophers, but they get, and I can, I can explain how this process works, but in our culture, we have biases, and those biases, they form 
our perceptions. So they come before we make a judgment. So there's already a bias and then we make a judgment about whether or not this person is worth being listened to or not. And so in our culture, we have a bias. When I talk about our culture, I'm talking about basically, unfortunately, almost global culture today, right? Women are um, not listened to as much as men. I mean, it's just a fact. In my country, the United States, we don't make as much money for the same amount of work. And in my profession, women are a minority. And in philosophy, I think they, at least when I was in graduate school in philosophy, women were ten were about 10%. So it was 90% men. Um, okay. And I would bring that up. I'd say to my professors, who were all men, I'd say, why can't we study philosophers who are women or not white, you know, from like Africa or something like that? Why can't we study those philosophers? And they could, they didn't have an answer for me. So, and I was lucky to go to the University of California system. So we had people like Judith Butler and um, at the time teaching in the University of California system. And they would come and they would teach when she was a philosopher who graduated from Yale and she wrote about women and gender. And she would come and talk to my classes. And so I would take classes from people in the women's studies department and people in the history department teaching about women's history so that I could fill out my education. And I did this on purpose so that I could get a better idea of the full range of philosophy and, you know, ideas about women. So it is erroneous to say that women have always been, have made less money or didn't have property. You know, in Egypt, women had property. Um, A lot of it is classist as well. In a lot of societies, women who are occupy positions of uh, low class, right, no power, unfortunately, um, are treated much differently than women who are have power and money. I mean, uh, Salami, she had her own money, right? She had yeah. she came from a wealthy family. And I was going to mention that, but that's part of why she was able to meet these men. You know, these men wouldn't be talking to her if she hadn't been super educated, right? So um, I think that that's one thing that I really admire about your work is that, you know, you are um, promoting women in business. And I personally think that right now, that's the most important thing that we can do. Um, That's why I enjoy the work that you do, um, because I think one of the most important things for women right now is to be economically autonomous. Uh, We have to be in order to explore the full range of what being a human being is. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that last sentence you you said about the whole range of what a human being is. If I were to say, and I know that Lex always asks people, what is the meaning of life? And I think that this is my understanding of Nietzsche's understanding of meaning of life. And you can tell me if you think my understanding of Nietzsche's understanding is wrong. But but this is the way I see it, the meaning of life, and you know, and, and I've always been, this is something that I've always been thinking about as a child, you know, I was like, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, who am I? You know, I was like four or five years old and it would drive myself mad. Like, honestly, I would drive myself mad. Like I was, I became depressed thinking, who am I? And I was like, wow, this is so crazy that I have feeling that I can, like, what is like my skin and I, and, and the veins in my eyes and the fact that I can see, like, it's like, where was I before I came here? So what was it like before, right? And, you know, who am I? Like, I, I used to ask, and in Persian, that's mankiam. I was like, mankiam, like, like mankiam. I used to ask myself that. And then that question 
persisted until my early 20s. And, and I think eventually I came to an understanding of what life was and why I was here. It was like a combination of reading science and philosophy. You know, Schrodinger talks about uh, the meaning of life or, or not the meaning, but he talks about what life is. And from his point of view, he's like basically the universe is always going towards a state of entropy and disorder. Um, and every now and then particles, um, this is like a paraphrasing, right? Particles randomly uh, aggregate and create um, a form of order. They resist that, uh, you know, that, that entropy. And, and that is life, right? So essentially, life is like the boundary between disorder and disorder. And that's what I love about Nietzschean concept of, um, you know, the Dionysian and the Apollonian, right? Dionysian is the entropy and the destruction and like, you know, that orgiastic sense of life, like, you know, Alex Holmes talks about this. There's this Instagram account called um, Nature is Metal, uh, and it's about how nature is like so cruel, essentially. That's Dionysian. That's the entropy. That's like the, the destruction. Then we have life, which is the Apollonian, you know, trying to, the logic and trying to kind of find some form of order. But the irony is that when these particles aggregate, and they create life, you know, and, and of course, then the higher form of that will be uh, the intelligent life. The irony of it is that in doing so, they actually increase entropy. Because, like, say, it's kind of like, you know, you get your house in order, but then you create rubbish, you know, yes. and then that, that rubbish has to be put out, right? So it's kind yes. of like now we are destroying our planet. So we are looking at going to Mars, you know, and to, right. uh, or find other planets, right? So this is the nature of life. It's like, it's, uh, it's this um, kind of fight between the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And what Nietzsche was saying was that as humans, we've become too Apollonian. It's my understanding that like he's saying, we have become too Apollonian, too logical, and we have forgotten the essence, the Dionysian essence. You know, if you think about the yin and yang, you know, like we've, we've forgotten that Dionysian essence. For him, he's like, if you can get a balance between the two, that's where the full experience of life happens. And if I were to say, you know, what is the meaning of life? It's about creating that balance between the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And that's when we, we call it like a state of flow. And if you think about a tightrope walker, right? Somebody who's yes. walking on a So that is like that person, like it, that person has to have a level of attention, presence, you know, and be in a state of flow, you know, to be able to do that. When you look at, you know, an athlete, for example, that's the full expression of life. In, in one aspect, you know, when you look at, I, I, I love um, women's gymnastics. And uh, when I was a child, I, I did that. And, but because I grew up in Iran, women were not allowed to do it. You know, or, like it wasn't very easy because you were not, you know, you, you are not allowed to be seen by men. So you could never go and compete, sure. you know, so I had to wow. kind of give up at an early age. But, you know, as you're training to be, uh, to be an, uh, a gymnast, you know, that's like when you look at women's gymnastics in, in Olympics, like that's just the, the absolute, and any, any sports, right? That's the absolute state of flow. And the meaning of life 
is to be in that, to be able to experience the full spectrum of the Dionysian and the Apollonian and the, and the bringing together of all of those contradictions and to be able to live with them harmoniously and to, to have both the order and the disorder together. And I think that's why Nietzsche to me, it seems like he had that. Yes, I think so too. And that was why he, it was difficult for him to relate to people uh, generally. <laughs> and you could feel it in his writings. I feel yes. like you can feel that, I would call that, for want of a better word, I would call that energy. You could feel that energy come from his writings as you read. And yeah. for those who are open, us philosophers in the, his future, right? For those of us who are open, we naturally, um, it's sacred literature for us, his writings, you know? That's I mean, right. really, to me, he is an incredibly mystical writer and person. And the beauty yeah. of life really is conveyed through his writings. And I, I really uh, love how you talk about the, you know, combination of uh, Apollo and Dionysus together in, you know, and he also has this will to power, this idea of will to power. And in a sense, there is that too, this idea that what is the will to power? Well, the will to power is basically this idea that you've risen above the conventions of your time, right? And yes. he talks about that in the Beyond Good and Evil, where he talks about that, what is the nature of good and evil? Well, there is no, you know, existential nature to it, or, you know, there is no eternalist or determinist nature. Uh, we create it. And he says, and it's those who have the will to this, do this, that do this. And it's those who are the people who, the, what he calls the Ubermensch, uh, the people that can, and I think that this is what we have when he was with Salome and, um, I forgot the name of the artist she was with. It wasn't Rilke at the time, but they formed- Paul Ray. Paul That's Ray. right, yes, yes, yes. yes. So they, uh, they formed this kind of threesome community, <laughs> right? And I believe that they felt this energy all together. Imagine that, you know? I know. And I think, I think that some um, communities, rave communities, you know, or, you know, where communities get together and there's music and the audience is as much a part of it as the people who play the music, right? I think that you can actually feel this type of what I call energy, you know, this type of what he called elevated states. So I don't want to yeah. put, I don't want to put a California term in Nietzsche's <laughs> mouth. He called these states elevated states. And so I should too. Uh, when I'm talking about Nietzsche, but I do feel that that we can attain those states, and I feel that being the gymnast, the gymnast trains and trains and trains. This is the Apollo energy, right? And then when the gymnast does his or her routine, the Dionysian energy comes, and that's when you are taken away, right? You're taken into it, and you're. Um, I'll give an example. In college, I had this boyfriend who's also a Nietzschean and um, a wonderful person. And um, I'm still a friend of mine. And he played basketball. He was playing basketball. And I was doing homework while he was playing basketball. And he was playing basketball, by the way, by himself. He was just shooting shots and everything. And all of a sudden, I felt that I needed to look up and watch him. And I looked up and I watched him. And he was making every shot. And so he would go further and further away from the hoop. And the further he got, 
he he would he would say oh, I'm gonna make this shot and he'd make it. He then turned around so he was his back was to the hoop and he said I can't miss and he said it in such a triumphant way and he shot the ball from behind and he made it and we both sat there in awe. I think that that was a Dionysian moment right there. I'll never forget it. Because, yes. You know, yeah. It's like it must be. So now, now, what does it have to do with women? When you talked about the full expression, and I wrote down here not to forget, uh, not to forget, um, because I think we can, as a, as humanity, we cannot have as as Homo sapiens, as as our species, we cannot have a full expression without women being in the picture. Because because for me, women. I mean, again, it's, it's metaphorically speaking, women for me are more a representation of the Dionysian because, you know, they are less, if you think about like the, the potentiality, you know, like the, the fact that women get give birth and you know, create life, right? So, so it, it's messy, you know, like it's yes. like when you think about even like the, uh, the way that, you know, our emotions changes through our cycle, through our lifetime, I think women are... Um, notoriously, uh, at least it's been classified this way, that they have a lot of different emotions. And, and that's, I think, part of the reason why maybe they have been kept out of politics or many other areas of business and, and economy and all that stuff, which is a mistake because we do need to embrace that level of Dionysian uh, messiness and, and disorder. And in a way, more than ever we need it now because i think that artificial intelligence is like the pinnacle of the apollonian uh you know it, it, i think i think like that apollonian faculty if you will if you will has has expressed itself has grown has grown and and that was what nietzsche was worried about has grown and grown to a point that it's like our society has now become so heavily apollonian and mm -hmm. because we haven't had women in the picture as these um, fields of study and science, you know, uh, uh, education have been developed, women have been held back. You know, they haven't been prominent. In, they have, like you said, you know, we've not been studying female philosophers. The reason why I'm so passionate about having women in business and technology and, you know, all fields and, and to have them in the top tier is because the female perspective will help us reach that state of flow as a as a species i think and yes be... i absolutely agree so there's a female philosopher named hannah arendt i don't know yes. if you're familiar yes with yes her work. so some of the things that i found most compelling about her idea of, of ethics because she wrote a lot about ethics as well as everything else she was just brilliant was this idea that she said there's what we call deontological ethics and then ontological ethics. So, so deontology is following rules. So it's basically the Apollonian ideal right there, following rules. And she said, this isn't going to cut it. And she said, I'll tell you why. She said, it's not going to cut it. Well, she didn't use those words, by the way. <laughs> this is my paraphrasing of Hannah Arendt. When you walk through a district of poverty, right, abject poverty, you know it's wrong. And the, the reason you know it's wrong is because you have feelings of horror and disgust and those feelings of of pain and suffering you feel for what you see and those are those inform your idea of what should be done about poverty right so she put front and central these feelings that you know aesthetic part of us our feelings 
uh, into the in deontology and into ethics in generally. We need to know, we know we need to be informed by how we feel about things. Feelings aren't just things that, I mean, they are things that come and go, but when we're confronted with something that is seems absolutely wrong, like horrible abject poverty, okay, children living without food, um, these are things that are horrible. And to deny that, uh, it would be to deny our humanity, right? To deny how we feel. We have these feelings. We've adapted these feelings for a reason. You know, we have them. They've helped us evolve. So let let us continue to uh, to create a better society because we're horrified by the fact that women and you know, there's the feminization of poverty. It's called. So women, especially when they're without men, they get divorced or they have children and they don't have. Uh, somebody to help them raise their children. They don't have money to feed their children. So um, all over the world, there's a crisis uh, regarding women and children. And I think that <laughs> it's pretty horrible. And I think we should be addressing that. And we should address it because we feel terrible about it. And if you can imagine yourself in that situation, um, I think that everyone would want to change it. Yes, I think that the process of hearing women is also a process of hearing how we've not been heard. Okay. Yes. Which is, I can, I can explain how that happens. Um, how come women are not heard? Okay. So like you said, this isn't something that's transhistorical and universal. Women have been heard uh, in, uh, in societies, in other societies. I, I lived in Ireland for a brief time during my, when I was a grad student, and my experience of women in Ireland was much different than my experience of women in the United States. And um, that a woman, a woman prime minister, women did there were there wasn't sexism like there there is in the United States. And when I would talk about my experiences of women in philosophy, um, they knew they would you know I'd talk to women philosophers there. They would say, well, we actually integrate women into our philosophy classes. We integrate texts from women. There are other countries that are better than at least my country in terms of uh, treating women. And there are countries that are a lot worse. <laughs> I think we have to acknowledge that too. So, okay, so, but how does this happen? So in my field, I've seen how women were not acknowledged. Let's take the example of early Christianity. And it's a very interesting process. So this is how it generally goes. So let's take this woman who was a very powerful early woman Christian and her name was Junia. Okay. And the first texts for Christians were the letters of Paul. And he was a friend of Junia's and he called her an apostle. Okay. And so he talked about Junia and Junia was everywhere, you know, for a woman in the, these sacred texts. Okay. She was named, which is important because a lot of women in that sacred text are named the Bible. And she had important roles. And she was called an apostle. She was a, um, or was it a deacon? I can't, I'm, I'm sorry. I have to be specific and I can't be specific. It was a high, it was a role that was a very prominent role for a woman. She traveled. This was a time when Roman women couldn't travel without a guardian, a man to, to be around with them. Okay. So she traveled. She brought Paul's letters different places where he wanted them to go, probably because he was in jail, <laughs> you know, for speaking out. Um, these were texts were written in Greek. So when they were translated into Latin, which happened, you know, maybe in the 200s and, all, and in the 300s, but mostly in the 200s, the Romans who translated that couldn't, they had, this is where we talk about bias. 
their their society had a bias that women didn't hold high positions of power. Therefore, this must not have been a woman. Therefore, they translated her name as a male name. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they now did they do this um, like maliciously? Probably not. You know, they weren't like we're going to hold women down. Let's hold women down by not by making Junia Junius. You know, this man now instead of no, I don't think so. I think they just did it because they couldn't conceive of a woman who was a strong leader in the early Christian church. So for then how many years, like 1800 years or more, we use the Latin and then it gets translated to English as a man. We use this form of the Bible. And so a lot of Christians and Christian women and Christian men, they didn't know Junius was a woman. <laughs> they wow. thought Junius was a man. And so it was only in recent times when you know, scholars of women, scholars get into this field, they go back and they say, wait a minute, that wasn't actually a male Roman name or a Greek name, you know, so, you know, how did that happen? And so they traced it back and they went and they corrected it, right? It's, it's not corrected in every edition of the Bible now. It's only corrected in some. Yeah. So this is how it's done. There's, there are processes in which I would say non-white people and in my culture, you know, kind of the Western United States and Western Europe, where women are, are just not paid attention to, they're written out, or people can't believe that they could possibly have been and done what they did. Um, another example, I was at the Vatican Observatory, and most people don't know that the Vatican has an observatory, but they do, and it's been around for a long time. It's really beautiful. It's up in Castle Gandolfo, which is where the popes have their summer. You know, they go and they summer there. And it's on this big volcanic lake. So it's incredibly beautiful. Um, and what I noticed there, I was a guest um, and I was given access to their archive. I was looking at space research. Okay. And in fact, they keep all of their space research there at this in this archive. And what I noticed was that the director of the archive is a monk. A Jesuit monk, and his name is Guy Consolmagno. And he put pictures up uh, from their record, from their archive, of the women who did all the star maps that were used to identify, you know, what was up in the sky, planets, constellations, things like that. They were, it was all these, nu these nuns were doing all the star maps. And I thought, somebody needs to write about this because nobody knows about this. And it is the same thing in the history of computer science, as you know, yeah. you know, there yeah. were all of, you know, and so I remember in philosophy, um, my wonderful professor, one of my first philosophy professors would always give credit to the first computer program created by a woman. And of course, I can't remember her name. Ada Lovelace. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Why are we reading that history? That's the question. Yes. And yeah, the question, exactly. and yeah, and so the answer is, I don't necessarily think it's malicious, you know, I think it's just biases that we have that we actually have to change. And we do have to change those. Because I'm, yeah. I'm pretty much sick of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I'm agree. I, I mean, we have a very small window of opportunity to change it because the way that artificial intelligence is going to completely change our, or it has already started to change, um, you know, change us as a species. Um, yes. and, and that is built upon that Apollonian male driven thinking and, and faculties. You know, it's, it's really uh, worrying because it means that the future of humanity could be this imbalanced. It's basically like just 
uh, doing everything with your like left hand or something like that yes. you know like like never yes. using your right hand or right your uh, you know your right leg you know so so you're so we are like we are overusing one uh, side of our our abilities our emotions um i wanted to ask you you know in my book um about the future of work uh, I, I talk about the fact that as humans we have three faculties or three capacities or you could say four and and that's where i'm going to talk to because talk to you about because i think you're as a as a theologian you would be the best person to talk to about so this so basically i'm saying that we have three main capacities that we know of physical cognitive and emotional and technology is the name that we give to the tools we create to enhance these capacities and it always starts with enhancing and then it goes to uh, replacing. So, so yes. first we enhance and then we outsource, right? So yes. the first industrial revolution uh, and, and the, the millennia leading up to it was all about enhancing our physical abilities. That's why today we have to go to the gym. You know, in the past we didn't use to go to the gym. We, right. we didn't need it, right? Because we had a lot of movement. But um, now we have to do that because uh, evolutionary, our body still needs that movement. Um, but uh, we are not getting that. And that's why we have to do these exercises. And then the computer revolution uh, was about um, enhancing and disrupting our mental or cognitive abilities. For me, I feel like artificial intelligence is where we are seeing. So, so when I say computer revolution, I mean, not necessarily uh, artificial intelligence. I'm talking about the earlier form where it was like you're programming a machine to do the same you know, sure. things, right? Yeah, like, so like it changed memories. It, yeah, exactly. Like even in a, yeah. a calculator, right? Even just right. using a calculator, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's where we are in. Uh, we are um, disrupting our uh, cognitive abilities, and then artificial intelligence is now disrupting our emotional abilities as well because it's interacting with us in a way that even if it's not emotionally aware, even if it's not necessarily conscious, it's impacting the way we feel. And the way that we are we are um, going to have this perception of our feelings and, and emotions. So arguably, you could say that as humans, we also have another dimension. So the fourth dimension, which you could call it the spiritual, or I think that's where religion comes from. You know, it's like you know that sense of looking for that meaning, that flow, right? Right. Yes, like, the like, transcendent. The yes. transcendent, right? Yes. So. I know that you, you mentioned in your podcast uh, with interview with Lex, you, you said that you're a practicing Christian or Catholic. Is that what you said? Uh, yes. From, yeah. Um, I, I'm a practicing uh, atheist, you know, like, like you know, I, I'm an atheist. I, I, I became an atheist and I'll tell you the story of it was, I became an atheist when I became, when I reached puberty. And I remember my mom said that I couldn't go into a mosque when I had my period, uh, because I wasn't clean. And uh, I was like, what do you mean? I'm not clean. I'm, you know, I've had a shower, you know, like, I'm like, you and, and, and she was like, no, like, you can't. And, and I'm like, you're telling me that God, if there was a God, you're telling me that this God is saying that half of uh, my creations, you know, like half of the humanity for a week per month, are not allowed to come to you know to to me because it wasn't just that you couldn't go to mosque 
it's also that you couldn't you shouldn't pray like you you are like you know we have this like three times a day prayer thing right right? and i was like wow yeah you couldn't no so i'm like i do not understand so so you're not supposed to um fast okay i i understand maybe that's from maybe there's some kind of scientific thing beyond it because you know you're losing your body is losing nutrients but but like you're not supposed to pray like you're not allowed to pray when you have your period and i'm like all right, my business with this religion is over, you know, <laughs> you know, and that was like the because I always asked questions about it. Obviously, sure. I, I, I had those sure. inclinations, but, but, but when it when that was the point where I'm like, goodbye, uh, religion and God, you know, like I'm just like, I'm yes. like, I'm not doing that. Well, I, so, I don't blame you. Yes. I yeah. Blame so you. almost lost, lost track of what I was trying to say with that. But but essentially, where was I going with that? It was um, there's the, the idea of the transcendent. So yeah, the transcendent. AI. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, the transcendence. So that's why it's like coming. This is coming from an atheist. Now I do meditate, and obviously I'm a Nietzschean. There are things that I don't understand, uh, and the things that I don't understand, sometimes I feel that I can feel, and the more I reach that state of flow. You know, like, like, for example, I have a very strong moral code that doesn't yes. come from religion. For me, yes. my moral codes come from the way I see it is like everything that I do uh, that I feel is not right. You know, if, if anything I do that, I, that my heart, my gut says this is not right. What that is like a mark on my character and, mm-hmm. and it impacts me being able to live in that state of flow. You know, it's kind of like the way I see it is like if you were an athlete, you know, and you're training for the game of your life, you need to be very good with your diet. You need to, you know, wake up, you know, like have that discipline. Right. And anything that you do that impacts that you're not going to be in that state of flow on that day. Right. That's that's my morality, essentially. So I just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of um, these four capacities and could it be that by allowing technology to help us um, enhance and maybe replace some of those other aspects that we could reach that state of flow more easily or will it will that make it harder i, I just because i okay. know so your your most recent book is uh, so t- yes. tell me about the most recent book i think i think this is this is coming yes. kind it of is, yeah yes it is very close to it so it's American Cosmic. Did you? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. So, yes. As American yeah. Cosmic. Yes. Okay. So I say, okay. So first let me explain my religion, my, my Christianity, Catholicism. Um, I get harassed <laughs> by, and, and also I'm provided with a lot of encouragement. Okay. I tell people this about it. I had a very powerful experience when I was 11. So I also like you, thought deeply when I was really young, which is kind of bad because it makes you somewhat depressed as a child <laughs> to think these things, right? I could tell that the Bible had a lot of inaccuracies when I read it, because I read it when I was 11. And I said, I'm, I'm either going to grow up and be a nun, or I'm going to grow up and be a professor of religion. So I could actually find out where, you know, what is going on here. Because I, I had a feeling that there was something transcendent, but I didn't know what it was. And I spent a lot of time searching for it. And um, I, I explored all the different religions. 
uh, you know, I'm from California in this new age environment, uh, which is eclectic. So there's, you know, there's convert Buddhists and Hindus and, you know, people that aren't from the indigenous cultures, but are converted and things like that. So I went through a lot of reading these primary texts and talking with people. And then, of course, I went to graduate school uh, among people who were Buddhists uh, in training, priests in training, sisters in training, nuns in training, people like that from all cultures. And then I got my PhD in religion. And of course, I studied philosophy. So I, you could say that my whole life has been spent doing this, okay? So what does this mean? This means that when you look at the church, say I take the Catholic Church as an example, it looks pretty bad, okay? It completely looks anti-woman, right? And misogynist even. I won't go into too much of it, but yeah, it looks bad. However, from my perspective, I went to an all-girls Christian, it was a Catholic school run by sisters, and I lived in California during the time period when uh, in El Salvador and all throughout the uh, Central American countries, terrible things were happening there. People were being disappeared. Um, people were, were being killed routinely. Uh, it was horrific. And these people would find refuge in Catholic churches, and they would come, come to California. The sisters were intimately and immediately there to help these people and they would come and tell us these girls who were in their classes about their experiences and to me i looked at my parents who had been educated kind of ex-hippie types right but then got really nice jobs and drove nice cars and i said to myself who would i rather be like i would rather be like these sisters and I would rather be out, you know, and I read Oscar Romero, you know, in the, the works of these Catholic people who were, who, by the way, the church did not like them. Okay. The church condemned them and they were people who were for feeding children and keeping people alive. All right. And like Oscar Romero, let's take him as an example. He was assassinated in a hospice on Christmas Eve, giving the you know a sermon to these people who were dying and he himself was assassinated um and why because he had told the police to stop hurting people he basically said police it is you who you know you get these these rules from on high why are you following them why do that to human beings you know what you're doing when you kill these children, when you disappear their mother, when you do this, why are you doing this? And then he was assassinated. And this is when I was young. And I saw the sisters the, uh, that were going down there, they were also assassinated. So to me, it was, it, it was an urgent. This is urgent. This is not something that we can just watch on TV and then forget about. This was something that I was immersed in because of my childhood and my high school education. And so I chose at that point to live this type of life. And I said, I believe my mother's Jewish. I said, I believe my mother who's good will be in heaven. Okay. If there's a heaven, I believe. So I do question my faith, but I don't assume that my faith is the magisterium of the Catholic church or the Pope for that matter. They are not my church. My church are those people who were assassinated, helping other people. So that's what I, I make a distinction between the people's church and then the people who like to call themselves the rule makers of the church. The rules of the church change. I've shown that in almost every paper that I've written and almost every book that I've written. 
the rules of the church have changed. You know, they're not universal. They're not trans-historical. So yeah, so I'm not a typical <laughs> Catholic, I guess you could say. But I know very many Catholics who are in positions of power who think just like that. So there are many Catholics who do that. Um, okay, so this idea of the transcendent and technology. Now let's get to that part. This idea of transcendence is really interesting because Nietzsche was trying to get to an atheistic transcendence. And he yes. did. Okay. Yeah. And I admire, and that's why I feel like I am a Nietzschean Catholic. Okay. So mm -hmm. if I were to choose, well, that would be hard for me. Let's put it that way. Um, because I know so many good sisters, you know, who are helping people, nuns and sisters and people like that. Um, Nietzsche didn't seem to be compassionate that much about other people. And so I guess that's where I, I differ from him. But he did say that the compassion of the superhuman, the Ubermensch, was a beautiful mm -hmm. compassion because it came from a sense of a place of reality, of character, instead of rules. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're trying to say about yourself, yeah. is that you don't have a sense of, you know, these, these rules outside yourself that you follow and therefore feel good about yourself. You actually have an internal idea of what is right and wrong. And if you don't follow it, it stops you from living your full life of experience, of the experience of the, what Nietzsche would call the elevated state. And I want to get to that because I think it's really important. So Nietzsche had this idea of the abyss. Remember his quote about yes. the abyss when he talked about the abyss? When he you look too much into the abyss. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. it looks back. Okay. Yes. Now I take this literally, Yes. literally. He is not being metaphorical. That's the beauty of Nietzsche is a lot of people misinterpret him as being metaphorical and he's literal. You know, he's basically saying, when you get to this point of elevation in your being, when you get to this elevated state, life speaks to you. And that's a be that's beautiful. And that was, um, that's in the gay science. I think it's aphorism 274 or something like that. But it's this really beautiful idea that I've experienced myself where, and you may too, because of meditation. So when you do practices of meditation and you do practices of prayers that are you know, where basically what you're trying to do is get rid of any kind of programs and preconceptions, biases about life so that you can feel and be with life on its own terms, then that's when life starts to talk to you. That's when events become synchronistic and beyond coincidence. And I've known in my book, American Cosmic, what I write about are the scientists who live in this state. And so they are actually Dionysian scientists. So you'd think that all scientists are Apollonian, right? And they follow these strict scientific method and these rules. But what I found out was that the most successful of these scientists were completely Dionysian in the sense that they felt that they were getting, and these are people who created technologies, sold their technologies on NASDAQ for a hundred million dollars, you know, their companies for many millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, undisclosed amounts, okay, so, but a lot. And so they're all millionaires and billionaires. And, and I've met a lot of them when I did research for this book. And what I found was that they did not follow the rules. They basically accessed parts, they accessed information that they shouldn't have had access to. And I saw that this was the history of technology, Somi, really is the history of technology. It is the history of our space program. So if you back, go back into the space program, if you read the first part of my book, I spent some time looking at the Russian and the American space programs, and you'll find a lot of weirdness there. Okay. You'll find that a lot of the people who created the calculations to get us actually out into space found that they were doing it through 
what you and I would call these kinds of ways. It was almost as if they were, uh, they felt like they were connected to a source that was outside of themselves. It wasn't almost, they felt that they were connected to a source outside of themselves. Each of them had different terms for it. Yeah. Um, I completely, like I've lived that. I feel like I've lived that all my life. Like I remember, I mean, if I show you a picture of where I was born, and brought up and you know nobody around me spoke English um, my parents had never um, left in their hometown and look here I am now having this conversation with you and you know this is just the start of our journey the way that I managed to transform my life you know to get like I, I only basically I only became a British citizen five years ago 2015 right until then I couldn't start a business I couldn't travel there's so many things I couldn't do so I was living in the UK as a I came here as a student you know and it took me 11 years uh, to become a British citizen I remember 2000 and I think it was 19 or 18 I remember 2018 I started doing these business breakfast meetings at um, the Ivy Club in London which is a beautiful club and I started to invite people like for example some of the people that came to my breakfast meetings were like um you know the chief marketing officer of bbc or the managing director managing director of louis vuitton you know uh managing director of mary claire who is now mary claire magazine was now a very good friend of mine um you know the ceo of bentley you know like amazing these were the kind of people that came to my breakfast meetings and i remember the first one that i had i went into the bathroom as i was waiting for people to arrive and i had you know this beautiful the, the beautiful room you know and i paid for the breakfast for 12 people and they came and they were like all people at, at those levels and as i was waiting for people to arrive i was early i went to the bathroom and i cried because i thought you know because i was like I made this happen, you know, wow. like, like, you know, and, and that is like, that's when you're like accessing that whatever. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, like, yeah. And, and to me, like the will to power is about self-overcoming and, you know, yes. and, and like you say, raising yes. above. And that's yes. why, you know, if you look at the, the tagline for Femtech, for, sorry, for Fempeak, our, the think tank, and the think tank for women in business and technology is about raising women's socioeconomic status through the application of technology. So raising women's socioeconomic status, and then we are using technology as a, as a vehicle to do that. The kind of people I've been surrounded by, and it's just doors just open. And when you look at it, you know, like, and the way I see it, when you have a, a mindset of like, life should be like that all the time for everybody. That's what like life is about abundance yes. and it's about you yes. know a, a sense of increase and yes. if you yes. if you can do that for yourself and for everybody else yeah then the, the way i see it see going back part of the reason why i feel like i need to go and get that phd is because as a philosopher you know i like i have all these thoughts and and things that i i feel like i need to be able to communicate but i know that you don't get taken seriously until you have that phd you know exactly yes <laughs> that, you know that's that's the, that's the problem right but i see myself as a transition architect we are going through these fast transitions through te technology and the way i see it we are not prepared for it our generation millennials our job is to make sure because we are the only link between the pre-digital and post-digital you know yes. and, and, and yes. it's our job our generation to make sure that this happens and this transition goes smoothly. 
I'm hoping to do that for our generation. And I really feel that women are the key, you know, that like, we really need to have women at the table. You know, you talked about compassion. You know, sometimes I get, sometimes people say that I'm, I don't have enough compassion or, you know, they, they, I think, I think we have this view of, um, sometimes people mix up empathy and sympathy, right? You know, yes. and may, maybe that view of, I think what Nietzsche was not for was sympathy, but, yes. he, but yes. he did have empathy. Right? He did. Uh, yes. Yes, he did. I don't know if it's a true anecdote from his life. It could be, but I just don't know. But there's that anecdote that later in his life, he he witnessed the beating of a horse. A horse yes. was being whipped, and he broke down in tears, right, and when tried to stop it. So he obviously had feelings of empathy, right, for others. Um, but I agree with you. He was not for rule-based ideas about this, and I, I agree with you entirely. Yes, I, th I think the reason why I want women at the table when we are talking about the morality of technology, you know, the ethics of technology, is that it, it has a level of complexity that is beyond the Kantian notion of the categorical imperative, you know, like it's like, yes. it's messy, right? When you look at yes. now, as we are trying to build these algorithms, you know, when you look at the driverless cars, for example, these are things where... I think rather than the critique of judgment, it's not about judgment anymore, or, or judgment is not enough. We need yes. to access, yes. right? We need to access that transcendental kind of um, place. And, and, and I, just, I just think we can't reach that without women. I don't think right. that, that you can rely on just one side of humanity to, to do that. I agree with you about this idea that we haven't caught up with where we're at technologically. I see that exactly right now in all over the school system. I'm a teacher. It's worse in the actual schools for children than it is in the higher education, you know, the, the colleges and universities, because at least in the universities, people have been using technology. Like I've been teaching online and using technology for 17 years, right? But most people haven't. And nobody has almost at the level where they're teaching children. And so we have a devastating time right now all over the world with, with this COVID situation that's forcing everyone to be using technologies that they've, they, they don't even know how to use them or what they are. And so you have parents then who are not, they can't adapt fast enough. The school systems can't adapt fast enough. So I'm wondering, what I see is like the beginning of a major stratification in class, you know, because we're going to have a lot of kids who are left behind because their parents aren't able to help them keep up. I have to help my kids learn the, the platforms and things like that in order for them to keep their grades up. I can't imagine I have a flexible job and I know the plat the, you know, software platforms and things like that. I can't imagine not, and also have computers. Think of the people who don't have computers, yeah. who don't know the platforms and things like that. So, I mean, these are the kinds of needs and this is the kind of a thing that I think that you're worried about, right? And yes. your, your generation is that link. You're right, because my kids are the generation then that, that's completely online, okay? Yeah, but they've never seen anything but. No, right? they haven't. Yeah, it is their reality now. 
And that is all of our reality now, right? So all of us yes. live in that reality. Some of us, like me, remember prior to that. Now I'm from California in the Silicon Valley region. So we were the first to kind of be immersed in that. By the time of eighth grade, we had computers. And then when I was in college, we had email. I lived my whole childhood without it, right? And then boom, there it was, learned it and realized that this was the game changer, just like it had been predicted by Heidegger and people like Tellier Deschardins and people like that. And here it is, now we're in it, right? We are completely in it now. And so the question is, is that who's going to keep up, Somi? That's the question, who? I think it's the people who are the tech giants and their ilk. And so what I think you're asking is, how can we make it right? How can it be more democratic? How can more people access this new life that we have? The way I look at it is that like the fact that there are five companies in the US and five companies in China running the world. Yes, pretty much. And they are all run and uh, founded by men. What I want is half of those to be women. You yes. Know? Like, like and, I want another yeah. 10, another that? 10, right? And, and yeah. those 10 have yeah. to be yeah. led by women. Yeah. And how do we do that? I That's why I started this. I'm super interested in PCTL actually, because um, I, I usually tell people, if you really want to understand where things are going, like watch Teal, because, you know, yeah. because, uh, I, you know, he, he wrote the foreword for a book called The Sovereign Individual, which I think is one of the best books um, I've read, uh, which in terms of make me understand the trend of technology and, and where things are going. I happen to actually agree with the, what they say. You know, it's actually very Nietzschean in a way, um, yes. you know, it, and it's like, you know, like on, on the surface, you may read that book and say there's no compassion in this, but actually it's very Nietzschean because it's all about you need to be an active participant, not, uh, well, that's how I put it. This is my, this is my terminology, I hope. But this is my understanding. It's like, you know, if you want to be, if you want to succeed in this age of technology, you need to be an active participant, not a passive observer, you know. And that's my understanding of where Teal is going with that. My worry is, because when I look at, and I mentioned to you, Eric Weinstein, that uh, I discovered his podcast through Lex, and I'm hoping, you know, maybe I send them this uh, episode. I, I'm going to send actually this episode to Eric, because I would really like to list, uh, sit down one day and talk to Eric and, and Peter Thiel. But especially, there are a few things that came to my attention. I really like Eric, but at the same time, there are things he says that sometimes makes me wonder about women. Like, for example, it's my understanding, at least he's suggesting that women are not as good in mathematics or that women are maybe not as good coders. My problem with that statement is that you do not know that. Like, we haven't given women enough of an opportunity to go out there and do these things. Like, they've been bogged down by family and, you know, by, um, you know, like when you look at the fact that women have had always the double burden of working for pay and not pay, you know, yes. so, so yes. they've got that entire, basically they, all women are working two jobs. Most men are working only one job. I'm not necessarily saying, no, that's wrong because I don't have 
uh, evidence. Uh, there's not enough scientific evidence. And I actually asked this question of Sarah Seeger, who is an astronomer at MIT, and also I discovered through Lexis podcast. And I asked her, I said, do you think men and women learn math differently? Because sometimes I wonder whether is that could it be that women learn math differently? Because there's there are some studies that show that when women do math problems, that they maybe use different parts of their brain, the way that they use their brain. So I don't know exa the exact terminology, but but could it be that's one thing? Is that our educational system has been built upon a male model? So could it be that our the way that we teach math and physics and you know STEM uh, fields? that is more conducive to the way that men learn? That's one question. The second question is, um, we can't say that women are not as good at these fields because we haven't had enough opportunity. You know, let me give you an, uh, another example. There is a book called Invisible Women that I'm actually gonna, uh, I'm gonna actually write to uh, Eric because at some point I wanna interview him, but I want him to read that book because it's such an interesting book. It talks about how, for example, when women go on sabbatical, they end up doing work, like, you know, housework, you know, like, like, and, and like children, right? Whereas, you know, whereas when men go on sabbatical, they actually manage to focus on, you know, whatever it is that but they're yes, doing. Yes, like, like, right, right, they're on sabbatical, yes. We are not taking those things into consideration. So my worry is, on the one hand, you know, I'm really interested in a lot of topics that these guys are talking about. The Sovereign Individual, to me, like completely, to me, it's a Nietzschean book. It's like, yes. step up, step up, take an active stance. Otherwise, right. you're going to be like, you know, irrelevant. And right. to 90% of society reading that will be like, this is just bullshit. Like, this is like, you're going to leave us behind. And I'm like, look, I was born and brought up in absolute poverty in a society where you know, it was very oppressive to women. But I changed that. I changed my situation. And you can do too. Like, I, I believe that anybody can, but it takes work, but it takes work. And it, it's not easy. So for women, there is this, additional layer of complexity. I always give that example on the website. I, I gave this little picture of, you know, when a woman wants to start a business, they are not starting from a flat surface. They, they have a mountain in front of them that first they have to break that down before they can even flatten the field to be able to, um, to even start. So yes, I just wonder, you know, people like um, Peter Thiel, uh, you know, uh, uh, Elon Musk, all of these guys that are, I just wonder, that are building these technologies, I wonder whether they can see this Dionysian and, and Apollonian conversation that we had, like, whether they can see that our society is going to be imbalanced if we don't have women in the picture as, you know, we make these decisions for the future of humanity. And that's worrying. Yes. I have been telling my students forever since I've been teaching, you you better learn to use technology or it will use you. And I said, you cannot be a passive user of technology, like just watching video games all day or just looking at Netflix or, you know, doing this program or that, or, you know, this video game. No, <laughs> you better learn how to code. You better learn to create. 
You better be a content provider. You better, you know, because this is our relationship with technology. Technology, in a sense, you, you call it Apollonian. And it may have been created through Apollonian memes, but it is fully Dionysian. It's going to take us over. Technology itself. Be, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, technology, the yeah. big umbrella of technology, it's, um, you know, because it's, it's one form of, you know, that one form of life, if you will, you know, one it, form yeah. of that. And we the, are the part. host species. You know, we are its host. We literally host technology, even biotechnologies, right? We're their host. I don't know what's going to happen, Somi. I'm like, I honestly don't know. And while I have enthusiasm and incredible love of life, I also see the dangers on the horizon and the darkness on the horizon, just like Nietzsche did, by the way. He also saw that. I do my best to help. To, to help students, to help my children, you know, to help people around me, uh, to help myself even, because it's not easy doing what I do. And I, and it's not been easy for me. I've worked for everything that I've done. Um, it wasn't, although my parents were well off, they, they didn't treat money well themselves. And therefore I worked myself through college. I earned my PhD on my own through scholarships and things like that and nothing was given to me, but I always had the, the will to power. I always did. So I always said to myself, I may, I'll probably not get a job as a professor, but it doesn't matter because I'll work. I'll do what it takes, right? I'll just, I'll make it work what I do. And I did. And I actually was lucky enough to get a, a PhD. I mean, I got a job prior to getting my PhD. So I agree with you that you have to be that sovereign individual or you're going to get mowed over, <laughs> right? Now, that yeah. is a terrible way to put it. There, and, and sorry to interrupt, their topic of, as, or concept of sovereign individual is more like basically they're talking about people like Musk or uh, Bill Gates, you know, that they're talking about the fact that there are going to be individuals that are going to be like a country, you know? Yes, like, absolutely. You know, that type we've of thing, seen, right? We have, we've and, seen and, I, and imagine a world where, like, okay, but there's no women in that picture, you know, and right. that worries me, worries me, you know, and, yes. and one of the, uh, I know uh, maybe last topic for today, because I mean, I, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but um, I'm aware of the fact that I've kept you for so long, but um, last topic for today, let's talk about gender because technology is genderless, right? And sometimes when I think about the fact that the way that our views towards gender is changing and you know people talk about uh, you know like in the past we didn't have this concept of not to the same degree like the way that we think about either transgender or non-binary you know and, and now we are in this place of people having to actually say what they identify as you know yes mm-hmm. um, we, we didn't have that before and I wonder whether there is a a parallel between technology and the way that question or that the uh subject of gender non-binary yeah yes right there is yes let's gave me three books that he wanted me to say impacted me you know and i gave him four books i think you gave him you gave gay science i remember that yeah yeah. (laughs) and so i also want to say that i was incredibly impacted by the work of uh two feminist philosophers uh judith butler and uh donna haraway and okay. Judith Butler wrote Bodies That Matter. And she, okay. I think it was it kind of out of her control, but she created the idea of queer 
right? And this idea of transgender and things like that. They, this was going on when I was in college in um, California. So I was right in the midst of it. And um, these are both incredibly brilliant people. And basically, Embodies That Matter, which, by the way, is a very difficult book to get through. However, if you get through it, you will have learned an incredible amount. So she, you know, she accesses Nietzsche. She accesses Kant. She, you know, she goes through the whole philosophical tradition here. And she basically says that there's, there's basically nothing that's gendered. There's, there, there, well, let's just put it this way. There's no gender. It's a very difficult concept, but I saw it as very Buddhist, this idea mm -hmm. that we have to take away our conceptions of gender. There's non-binary, okay? So then let me go to Donna Haraway's work is a lot easier to describe than Judith Butler's work. I will have to say, read Judith Butler's Bodies That Matter or Gender Trouble, and you'll get an idea. Um, she's, she's an amazing scholar. Donna Haraway wrote this book called The Cyborg Manifesto, and it basically was about technology and biotechnology, and she knew exactly where we were headed. She was, you know, way ahead of her time. Um, she was given a lot of credit at her in, during her time because of her brilliance, but I don't think that people at the time, it was almost like she was hitting us with a ton of bricks, right? She was basically saying that we are now cyborgs and cyborg is the idea of the, you know, the, the, the binaries of machine and bodies or human bodies and machines. We can't have that anymore. We don't, you know, it's, it's actually untrue. There are no more binaries. This binary of nature and non-nature of man and female of animals and humans and all of these binaries that we have are completely Nietzschean would say created binaries, creative ways that we understand our world and technology is now breaking those down to the point where those don't even exist. So they're basically showing us that they never really existed in the first place is what she's saying. And I really resonated with her work. That's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You should read that. The Cyber yeah, Manifesto. Um, I can send you some of my work too, because I actually oh, use a lot of her uh, work. You know, a lot of my academic work is not, people don't access academic work, which I understand why, but they're in textbooks and things like that for, you know, but I'll send you some. And one is um, called the techno hybridity, human and techno hybridity. Okay. And so basically um, I live in a world where I live at, you know, when I say I live in this world, I'm a university professor, which means that I'm immersed within communities of, human beings who call them who don't call themselves anything they're non-gendered okay and so when i walk into the classroom i used to say hey guys how are you doing i don't say that anymore because that's you know i'm gendering them that they don't want to be gendered that way so i i now i use the colloquial southern term y'all <laughs> i go in and say hey y'all how are you doing today so you know and plus i have children and they're growing up in this world and you know, they have their own ideas about being what they are. And they don't like it when I say, oh, you look so pretty today or something like that. Okay. And so they, you know, they resist these kinds of terms. So we're actually living in this world. I live in this world. So I think that a lot of people would suggest that, I, first of all, there's a danger here in losing the term woman, because I believe that we are still, you know, women are a category that needs to be, J.K. Rowling was just harassed for this, but you know, needs to be kept as a special category because um, 
there was a, an issue with women in sports and transgender women were winning all the sports, but you know, they were men before they were women and they have different physiological bodies. So some sports, especially um, MMA, for example, mixed martial arts said that there has to be a separate category. Transgender women, at least not yet, can't have children. I have children and it has impacted my life in fundamental ways and, you know, and impacted my career and everything like that. It's very difficult for me to speak about these issues because they are so incredibly politicized at this moment. There can be a Twitter flame war against me by saying, you know, women need to, <laughs> that has happened to people. Maybe I'm a little bit like a kitten that's not uh, afraid of fire. You know, I don't care. I'm just going to say it. I really like you said losing women. Like, I yeah. worry that we may lose women because we are, for millennia, it's all been male dominated. And now we are going into this, you know, um, non-gender realm. My worry is that we haven't had a balance of the two genders to this point. And I really don't want to lose women. <laughs> you know, I, yes. I, I, I don't know yes. how to explain that. I mean, look, um, I don't have children and I decided not to have children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, and it's one of the things that, for example, Eric Weissen, uh, he often has arguments with people about this around, you know, the role of women as um, childbearers, you know, he's like, he basically says, I, it's my understanding that that's what women should do. And that's a good thing. Um, but I have my own reasons for not wanting children. <laughs> uh, you know, then the main reason, I think. That sounds really uh, old fashioned, by the way. It is. Saying. And it worries me. <laughs> and it worries me because I wonder if like, if, if that's his view, but there is also Peter Thiel's view, which means that we should all be sitting home and like, maybe not. I don't um, think building. it is. Or else I don't think he would have invited me to speak to him if it was his yeah, view. Yeah, I hope so. so. I give him the because because like, because my <laughs> argument is that I want to see equal number of women in business and technology in the top tier where decisions are made about the future of humanity now like i said you know i have my own reasons for not wanting children i think it comes down to the fact that i had a very difficult childhood i didn't have a oh, good right. relationship yes. with my mother and i and i used to tell her why did you bring me here because life was so hard you know my um my childhood is just so bad that i I, um, you know, even I remember even after I came to the UK when I was a student here, there was times where th things was really tough. And, and I, sometimes I talked to her on the phone and I was like, why did you bring me here if you couldn't support me? If you, you know, if, if, if you couldn't have, uh, you know, that's why I kind of told myself I'm never going to have children. There are enough children that don't have parents and I may adopt, uh, but I'm not going to have my own children. Was, uh, and the other thing is that I wanted to do all of this. And if I, of course, uh, you know, you know, because... Yes. If I was born and brought up in the West, if I had, if I, if I didn't have to work, if I didn't have to wait for 11 years to get British citizenship, by the time when I was 23, I was trying to get out of, uh, you know, a forced marriage in Iran and try to leave the country to come here, right? So, wow. so like I was, I was forced to marry my my cousin, like my first cousin. Wow. So, so, so when you come from that kind of difficult background, you have so much drive to to go uh, and do something with your life, and and it feels like children will just get in the way because. Uh, you know, you cannot guarantee that you will have the right kind of partner, you know, so I decided children not for me. Going back to that gender and technology thing, what, one of the things that's like 
my goal, you know, as I'm building this thing, success that I gain, I would like to be able to invest in research around technology that gives women the opportunity the, or the option to have children outside their body. You know, not necessarily like this, going back to this you know, gender kind of thing. It's like being a woman, I don't think you're defined by having children you know no, like, no, like, you know, like, like yes. i feel like a woman in yes. every possible way right yes and, yes and and you know you may ask what does that feel like you know it a lot of people uh, could think like oh, i come across or i am i am generally a dominant person because i have to be because you have to be able to bulldoze your way to um, gain any kind of success in business and technology being a woman is not about being submissive it's not about being subservient it's not about having children there is a quality of womanness that i feel in my gut you know and mm -hmm. and that quality of womanness is beautiful to me and i think it should be preserved that would be like my kind of final bold word on that my <laughs> final word on that <laughs> you know the irony is of all the podcasts of Eric Weinstein that I listened to, probably the most interesting one was, well, two of them that I really like, one of the, the two most interesting ones was one of them where he talks to his 14-year-old son, who on that podcast, uh, as they're talking, he becomes 15, and it's like his birthday. Um, and this boy's opinions and the way that he talks about gender is so nuanced. And it's like, wow, like, if all Gen Zers are going to be like that, like, that's a very good future, you know, in terms of like the way he's just paraphrasing, but it's kind of like, yes, his masculinity matters to him, but he also understands that the, the conversation of gender um, is, is like, it, it has to be held, you know, because for, because for a very long time, obviously women have been in the position that we have been discussing throughout this topic into this conversation today. And, and he understands that that conversation has to be had and that kind of, uh, you know, conversation of whether it's equality uh, of opportunities, all of that. You know. And I was like, like, this is great. Like the, the, a 15 year old, you know, to be able to I have that. that that's, that's the case right now um, from my own children and, and how old are they? their friends. My children are between the ages of 13 and 17. Mm -hmm. and have some twins so they are um absolutely aware the whole conversation that was started by you know forever it seems but really got going in the 1980s and, and onward about transgender essentialist categories of men and women and how some people feel that they're in a body that appears to be a woman's body, but they feel like a man. So they're aware of these kinds of ideas. That's why these terms like non-binary comes about, and my students as well, you know, with the use of pronouns and things like that. And then the use of no, no pronouns, you know, like there, there's now a movement of, it's not no pronouns in the old sense. Like, you know, we assume that this is a man or this is a woman. This is basically make no assumptions. This is a mm -hmm. new way of being, make no assumptions about who and what I am, just talk to me as you find me. That worries me because that's where I wonder whether we might lose the womanness, you know, the woman. Yes, yes. I don't, well, I don't want to lose yeah. women. 
No, well, I mean, the problem is that you still have the feminization of poverty. You still have women who yes. yeah. do the same job. And, you know, so if we talk like there is no category of women, and this has been a conversation that seems to be have been going on around me for like 20 years. Like, you know, can we preserve the category of women? And I remember my professors having major fights about this. All right. And I thought, you know, I was so confused, like, can we just get over it? But no, we can't because we're still having that conversation. So, mm -hmm. you know, women, it's like the problem, the problem of women or something like that, you know, like, mm -hmm. okay, I agree that it's true. There's going moving because of technology, we're moving into a completely and probably always have been non-binary world, but we pretended we were living in this framework of binaries. Okay. So we've lost the pretense and here we are. What do we do now that women still only make a certain amount of money for the same work that men do? Okay. Yeah. We've got to address that situation. And are the sovereign individuals going to address that? That I don't think so. No, think we that, need female sovereign yes, individuals. Exactly. That's what we, we need, need to do it. Yeah, exactly. Cause they're not going to do it for us no. and they're not going to care. That's when you said you wanted to have this conversation about this with, um, I forgot his name, the person who thought that women weren't as good at math or code. Oh, Eric, I mean, Eric Weinstein. Yeah, don't have that conversation. As far as I'm concerned, that conversation's already done. We know that women just haven't had the opportunities to do it. And when they do, they're good at it, as good as, as other people, okay? And so I think that my daughter is right now in the North Carolina School of Math and Science, and it's a, uh, it's a merit-based school. Uh, it's a residential school. And it's one of the hardest schools to get into for kids in the country. And she got on, she did that through her hard work in science and technology. And there are lots of girls there or non-binary people that identify as girls um, that are there or, you know, people that identify as girls and happen to be in girls' bodies who are excellent at math and science. That conversation, I don't think you need to spend time on some. I don't I know. I think it's important because he, like this person, Eric Weinstein, is the right hand to Peter Thiel. Like, it, Did so I these meet are people. <laughs> maybe. Him and not even you may have. No, you may have. You may have. I'm really giving I'll, him a little bit of my mind there. <laughs> yeah, because, because, like, because these are people who are having an impact on the way that these, you know, the way that we fund you know, science and technology, you know. With, absolutely, with, absolutely. So that's why yes. it's important to have it that is. Okay. conversation. Like, I want to look into the person's eyes and say, tell me that I'm not good enough at business <laughs> or, at you know, like, you know, because business is, is doing math, you know. Last thing I'd, I'd say is that um, I always mention this since um, I had an interview with Professor Alessandra Kasser of San Francisco University. And she said, that the differences between sexes is much less than the differences within the sexes. So, so, with, so it was like, oh, you know, you talk about the, right? Like that she yes. was like, you know, people often think like male alpha, you know, woman, like not, you know, and basically what she's saying is like within the category of women, there is so much more uh, differences in, in the way that, you know, the, the alphaness and you know all that stuff you know like there's there's so many more differences within the category than between the sexes because we she was like you know it's a very lazy thing essentially to say that men are like this women are like this there so there are 
many, many more variations and you can look at uh, the spectrum of male, female, you know, and, and within the female genetic psyche, you know, all that stuff and, and men. That was like the, the most important point that I took away from that conversation. And I've been mentioning it since then. That's what you need to tell our friend. Eric, yes, I'm going to tell him. <laughs> well, it's been an amazing conversation. And I really, I'm, I'm looking forward to your book being available in audio format. Um, because I'm an audio, um, you know, it learner. Is available. It is, is it available. now? Because yes, I, I checked. Oh, but it your name, available. it doesn't come up on Audible. It should. It should come up. Okay, I'm going to check it um, in. Yeah. going to listen to it. Yes. I can't wait. Because, uh, and you mentioned um, to, I remember when you were with Lex, you mentioned about something about your next book. And you said that yes. one is going to be much more accessible. Yeah. Do you want to tell yeah, me a little I mean, bit about, what's about what it's sure. about? Sure. So basically what I'm doing is I'm offering um, a book. I say offering because I get asked a lot about the ways, you know, you call it self-overcoming, you know, this will to power that Nietzsche talks about. Well, in every religious, major religious tradition and philosophical tradition that I've come upon, there are excellent strategies and techniques to do exactly this. And so um, over my years of studying these, I've accumulated a long list of these. And I teach them to my students. I've helped students self-overcome. I take students, some who have never gone to college or uh, parents never gone, you know, they're first-time college students, get into Harvard and things like that. What it takes is a lot of these mental techniques that we can apply and use. What I am doing in this book that I'm doing now is I'm um, doing a chapter, I call it Life Hacks from the History mm -hmm. of Philosophy and Religion. And basically giving examples historically and also from my life and from students' lives that I've known and people that I've known and basically teaching people how to do these things for themselves so they can become the people that they want to become. They can direct their lives and things like that. They can be as happy as they could possibly be. They don't have to be stuck in this idea that, you know, this mental idea maybe they inherited from their parents that they weren't good enough or something like that. They are. So it's, it's basically like a philosophical self-help book. Something Amazing. that I've never written before, but I feel the need to write it, so I'm writing it. Tell me, tell me about some of those life hacks that you learned. Uh, for example, what life hacks do we get from Nietzsche? <laughs> oh, from Nietzsche? Oh, he's great with life hacks. Okay, I know. <laughs> so, um, Nietzsche, you know, the thing about him is that people haven't read him super carefully, I, I feel. And this is, I've taken from him things that probably most people would never have paid attention to. One of the things that he talks about is the person who has overcome, like that super person, the ubermensch, okay? That person creates their space, their physical space. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, so, okay, I was in a very bad place in my life at one point, okay? I mean, terrible. And I looked around my, my room and my house and I said, this looks like a dump. You know, no wonder why I feel really bad about myself. So I slowly made it incredibly beautiful, exactly how I wanted it, exactly how I envisioned a person of success to live, okay? And I made my space that way. And you can see this in traditions like feng shui, you know, that you what you see around you basically reflects yourself back to you. So if you're surrounded by, you know, that's why um, my my brother is a, um, or he's retired now, but he was the, he was the uh, head of 
sheriff's department. And so he was involved with people who he would call it the cycle of poverty. They would go to prison and then their children would go to prison. Their grandchildren would go to prison. And I said, thought to myself, why, you know, why is there a cycle of this? And I, and so we can break these cycles. So we can break them by changing first, this first hack that I learned from Nietzsche was basically changing your physical environment. And you just start off small with your bedroom. You change your bedroom first because, you know, say you really want a successful life. Well, you're going to put some very expensive furniture in your bedroom. All right. So you, and look for it, get the best deal. I'm not saying, you know, break the bank, just put it in there and that and you'll wake up. And that's the first thing you see. Ah, <sighs> It's luxurious, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Oh my God, I love this. I, I absolutely love this. This is, it just like, it just goes to show how Nietzsche and I am. Because um, I'm going to send you a video. I have a video on LinkedIn where I talk about uh, building your space for working from home. Oh, and wow. Honestly, and I bought this flat during the lockdown. I designed and built everything. Of, like, you know, my furniture, everything. I built, like, I, I got drills, you know, I taught myself. Wow drilled like honestly like I just put together everything uh, even my wardrobe so the only thing I've had help with was there was like uh, some of the panels of my wardrobe that I couldn't it was too big and heavy for me I had somebody to help me put the panels in place but then I made all the drawers myself I designed it the way that I always imagine you know like I, I liked uh, a pale like pale pink and blue you know that type of you know color beautiful I love that and I have, and then my best friend who I haven't, you know, over the past 15 years, I've only seen her once for like three days. Um, so she's, uh, she's still in Iran, but she, she sent me a picture of a note that I had written when I was like, I think 19 or something. And in it, I described the way that I will design my flat. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, it gave me goosebumps. I was like, you know, she was like, like you literally like she was like your house your flat that you just bought and built put together it's exactly how you told me that you wanted it to look like that is amazing that's beautiful i love that that's a life i love that story you. yes i love that because it's absolutely the case so you, you did that that's and that's what i hope people will take away from the book that i'm writing now i feel like i've done mm-hmm. that for me too in my life and i've seen other people do it and I've learned from people. One of the people in American Cosmic is Tyler, and he's a multimillionaire from doing exactly these kinds of things. And he came from a family who's the first person to go to college in his family. Me too, and, I was. And he went to, I well, I won't say where he went to because he's a, is a pseudonym, Tyler, not his real name, but he was a C student who barely made it out. And then when he got out, he's worked for our space program. And then he had a, well, he couldn't even get a job in the space program. So he wanted to work at NASA. And what he did was he, he uh, became a uh, janitor. And now he's one, he's a top researcher in our space program, in the U.S. space program. And so he used, he told me his life story and I couldn't believe how much it conformed to all of these life hacks. And so each person in my book that that you'll read about or listen to about, listen about are millionaires and some billionaires who've used these techniques. And so I kept mental notes, you know, and even people who are successful and aren't millionaires or billionaires, but just did it themselves and did it in ways that were not conventional. You know, they didn't inherit money or they weren't particularly 
gifted in any way, created an amazing life for themselves by using these techniques. So I decided at some point, I need to write this down because I'm telling it to my students all the time. They're doing amazingly well. I would need to leverage this information. So how do you do that? You write a book, you put up a website and you know, you get the information out. So that's what I intend to do. Amazing. And I'm, I'm uh, going to make sure that, you know, I, by the time you finish that, I'm sure our community will be a lot bigger. I started putting out uh, an email to say, to find out who wants to invest in female entrepreneurs, because I'm building an investment network of people who want to back female entrepreneurs. And like within a few days, I'm like, I can't, I can't even, like, I just thought, let me do an experiment, see if people will respond. I think we already got about 60 responses. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, like, it's amazing that like when you have the intention to do something and then you, you actually put in the hours and do the work, you know, and you, every morning you wake up and you keep holding that image, you keep holding that image. My hope is like, by the time I'm dying, I want to see women in the top tier, you know, and even the if it doesn't, women. yes, yes. And if it doesn't happen in my generation, I want to have built a platform that will be a stepping stone for other women to, to reach that. Um, but I can't see a reason why it shouldn't happen in my generation, you know, in, in my lifetime. I think that's beautiful. Wonderful. I love that. Thank you. It's been amazing talking to you. You too. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Diana Waj Basalka. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star review. You can also find the full video of these conversations on my YouTube channel. And connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Clubhouse at Somi Ariane. Finally, if you're not yet a member of Fempeak, head over to fempeak.ai and register to join a community that actively supports women.